Section 22 of Captain Singleton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. The Life, Adventures, and Piracies of Captain Singleton by Daniel Defoe. In the meantime, we came to anchor under a little island in the latitude of twenty-three degrees, twenty-eight minutes, being just under the northern tropic, and about twenty leagues from the island. Here we lay thirteen days, and began to be very uneasy for my friend William, for they had promised to be back again in four days, which they might very easily have done. However, at the end of thirteen days, we saw three sail coming directly to us, which a little surprised us all at first, not knowing what might be the case, and we began to put ourselves in a posture of defence. But as they came nearer us, we were soon satisfied, for the first vessel was that which William went in, who carried a flag of truce, and in a few hours they all came to an anchor, and William came on board us with a little boat, with the Chinese merchant in his company, and two other merchants, who seemed to be a kind of brokers for the rest. Here he gave us an account how civilly he had been used, how they had treated him with all imaginable frankness and openness, that they had not only given him the full value of his spices and other goods which he carried in gold, by good weight, but had loaded the vessel again with such goods as he knew we were willing to trade for, and that afterwards they had resolved to bring the great ship out of the harbour, to lie where we were, that so we might make what bargain we thought fit. Only William said he had promised in our name that we should use no violence with them, nor detain any of the vessels after we had done trading with them. I told him we would strive to outdo them in civility, and that we would make good every part of his agreement. In token whereof, I caused a white flag likewise to be spread at the poop of our great ship, which was the signal agreed on. As to the third vessel which came with them, it was a kind of bark of the country, who, having intelligence of our design to traffic, came off to deal with us, bringing a great deal of gold and some provisions, which at that time we were very glad of. In short, we traded upon the high seas with these men, and indeed we made a very good market, and yet sold thieves pennyworths too. We sold here about sixty ton of spice, chiefly cloves and nutmegs, and above two hundred bales of European goods, such as linen and woolen manufactures. We considered we should have occasion for some such things ourselves, and so we kept a good quantity of English stuffs, cloth, bays, etc., for ourselves. I shall not take up any of the little room I have left here with the further particulars of our trade, it is enough to mention that, except a parcel of tea, and twelve bales of fine china wrought silks, we took nothing in exchange for our goods but gold, so that the sum we took here in that glittering commodity 
amounted to above fifty thousand ounces. Good weight. When we had finished our barter, we restored the hostages, and gave the three merchants about the quantity of twelve hundred weight of nutmegs, and as many of cloves, with a handsome present of European linen, and stuff for themselves, as a recompense for what we had taken from them. So we sent them away exceedingly well satisfied. Here it was that William gave me an account, that while he was on board the Japanese vessel, he met with a kind of religious or Japan priest, who spoke some words of English to him, and, being very inquisitive to know how he came to learn any of those words, he told him that there was in his country thirteen Englishmen. He called them Englishmen very articulately and distinctly, for he had conversed with them very frequently and freely. He said that they were all that were left of two and thirty men, who came on shore on the north side of Japan, being driven upon a great rock in a stormy night, where they lost their ship, and the rest of their men were drowned. That he had persuaded the king of his country to send boats off to the rock or island where the ship was lost, to save the rest of the men, and to bring them on shore, which was done and they were used very kindly, and had houses built for them, and land given them to plant for provision, and that they lived by themselves. He said he went frequently among them to persuade them to worship their god, an idol, I suppose, of their own making, which he said they ungratefully refused, and that, therefore, the king had once or twice ordered them all to be put to death, but that, as he said, he had prevailed upon the king to spare them, and let them live their own way, as long as they were quiet and peaceable, and did not go about to withdraw others from the worship of the country. I asked William why he did not inquire from whence they came. I did, said William, for how could I but think it strange, said he, to hear him talk of Englishmen, on the north side of Japan. Well, said I, what account did he give of it? An account, said William, that will surprise thee, and all the world after thee that shall hear of it, and which makes me wish thou wouldst go up to Japan and find them out. What do you mean, said I, whence could they come? Why, says William, he pulled out a little book, and in it a piece of paper, where it was written, in an Englishman's hand, and in plain English words, thus. And, says William, I read it myself. We came from Greenland, and from the North Pole. This, indeed, was amazing to us all, and more so to those seamen among us who knew anything of the infinite attempts which had been made from Europe, as well by the English as the Dutch, to discover a passage that way into those parts of the world. And as William pressed as earnestly to go on to the north, and to rescue those poor men, so the ship's company began to incline to it. And, in a word, we all came to this, that we would stand in to the shore of Formosa, 
to find this priest again, and have a further account of it all from him. Accordingly, the sloop went over, but when they came there, the vessels were very unhappily sailed, and this put an end to our inquiry after them, and perhaps may have disappointed mankind of one of the most noble discoveries that ever was made, or will again be made, in the world, for the good of mankind in general, but so much for that. William was so uneasy at losing this opportunity, that he pressed us earnestly to go up to Japan to find out these men. He told us that if it was nothing but to recover thirteen honest poor men from a kind of captivity, which they would otherwise never be redeemed from, and where, perhaps, they might, some time other, be murdered by the barbarous people, in defense of their idolatry, it were very well worth our while, and it would be, in some measure, making amends for the mischiefs we had done in the world. But we, that had no concern upon us for the mischiefs we had done, had much less about any satisfactions to be made for it. So he found that kind of discourse would weigh very little with us, then he pressed us very earnestly to let him have the sloop to go by himself, and I told him I would not oppose it. But when he came to the sloop, none of the men would go with him, for the case was plain. They had all a share in the cargo of the great ship, as well as in that of the sloop, and the richness of the cargo was such they would not leave it by any means. So poor William, much to his mortification, was obliged to give it over. What became of those thirteen men, or whether they are not there still, I can give no account of. We are now at the end of our cruise. What we had taken was indeed so considerable that it was not only enough to satisfy the most covetous and the most ambitious minds in the world, but it did indeed satisfy us, and our men declared they did not desire any more. The next motion, therefore, was about going back, and the way by which we should perform the voyage, so as not to be attacked by the Dutch in the Straits of Sunda. We had pretty well restored ourselves here with provisions, and it being now near the end of the monsoons, we resolved to stand away to the southward, and not only to keep without the Philippine Islands, that is to say, to the eastward of them, but to keep on to the southward, and see if we could not leave not only the Moluccas or Spice Islands behind us, but even Novo Guinea and Nova Hollandia also, and so getting into the variable winds, to the south of the Tropic of Capricorn, steer away to the west, over the great Indian Ocean. This was indeed, at first, a monstrous voyage in its appearance, and the want of provisions threatened us. William told us, in so many words, that it was impossible we could carry provisions enough to subsist us for such a voyage, and especially fresh water and that, as there would be no land for us to touch at 
where we could get any supply, it was a madness to undertake it. But I undertook to remedy this evil, and therefore desired them not to be uneasy at that, for I knew that we might supply ourselves at Mindanao, the most southerly island of the Philippines. Accordingly, we set sail, having taken all the provisions here that we could get, the 28th of September, the wind veering a little at first from north-northwest to the northeast by east, but afterwards settled about the northeast and the east-northeast. We were nine weeks in this voyage, having met with several interruptions by the weather, and put in under the lee of a small island in the latitude of sixteen degrees twelve minutes, of which we never knew the name, none of our charts having given any account of it. I say, we put in here by reason of a strange tornado, or hurricane, which brought us into a great deal of danger. Here we rode about sixteen days, the winds being very tempestuous, and the weather uncertain. However, we got some provisions on shore, such as plants and roots, and a few hogs. We believed there were inhabitants on the island, but we saw none of them. From hence, the weather settling again, we went on and came to the southernmost part of Mindanao, where we took in fresh water and some cows, but the climate was so hot that we did not attempt to salt up any more than so as to keep a fortnight or three weeks, and away we stood southward, crossing the line, and leaving Gilolo on the starboard side, we coasted the country they call New Guinea, where, in the latitude of eight degrees south, we put in again for provisions and water, and where we found inhabitants, but they fled from us, and were altogether inconversable. From thence, sailing still southward, we left all behind us that any of our charts and maps took any notice of, and went on till we came to the latitude of seventeen degrees, the wind continuing still northeast. Here we made land to the westward, which, when we had kept in sight for three days, coasting along the shore for the distance of about four leagues, we began to fear that we should find no outlet west, and so should be obliged to go back again, and put in among the Moluccas at last. But at length we found the land break off, and go trending away to the West Sea, seeming to be all open to the south and southwest, and a great sea came rolling out of the south, which gave us to understand that there was no land for a great way. In a word, we kept on our course to the south, a little westerly, till we passed the south tropic, where we found the winds variable, and now we stood away fair west, and held it out for about twenty days, when we discovered land right ahead, and on our larboard bow. We made directly to the shore, being willing to take all advantages now for supplying ourselves with fresh provisions and water, knowing we were now entering on that vast, unknown Indian Ocean, perhaps the greatest sea on the globe, having, with very little interruption of islands, a continued sea 
quite around the globe. We found a good road here, and some people on shore, but when we landed they fled up the country, nor would they hold any correspondence with us, nor come near us, but shot at us several times with arrows as long as lances. We set up white flags for a truce, but they either did not or would not understand it. On the contrary, they shot our flag of truce through several times with their arrows, so that, in a word, we never came near any of them. We found good water here, though it was somewhat difficult to get at, but for living creatures we could see none, for the people, if they had any cattle, drove them all away, and showed us nothing but themselves, and that sometimes in a threatening posture, and in number so great, that made us suppose the island to be greater than we first imagined. It is true they would not come near enough for us to engage with them, at least not openly, but they came near enough for us to see them, and, by the help of our glasses, to see that they were clothed and armed, but their clothes were only about their lower and middle parts, that they had long lances, half-pikes in their hands, besides bows and arrows, that they had great high things on their heads, made, as we believed, of feathers, and which looked something like our grenadiers' caps in England. When we saw them so shy that they would not come near us, our men began to range over the island, if it was such, for we never surrounded it, to search for cattle, and for any of the Indian plantations, for fruits or plants. But they soon found, to their cost, that they were to use more caution than that came to, and that they were to discover perfectly every bush and every tree before they ventured abroad in the country, for about fourteen of our men going farther than the rest into a part of the country which seemed to be planted, as they thought, for it did but seem so, only I think it was overgrown with canes, such as we make our cane chairs with. I say, venturing too far, they were suddenly attacked with a shower of arrows from almost every side of them, as they thought, out of the tops of the trees. They had nothing to do but to fly for it, which, however, they could not resolve on, till five of them were wounded, nor had they escaped, so, if one of them had not been so wiser or thoughtfuler than the rest, as to consider that, though they could not see the enemy so as to shoot at them, yet perhaps the noise of their shot might terrify them, and that they should rather fire at a venture. Accordingly, ten of them faced about, and fired at random, anywhere among the canes. The noise and the fire not only terrified the enemy, but, as they believed, their shot had luckily hit some of them, for they found not only that the arrows which came thick among them before ceased, but they heard the Indians halloo after their way to one another, and make a strange noise, more uncouth and inimitably strange than any they had ever heard, more like the howling and barking of wild creatures in the woods than like the voice of men, 
only that sometimes they seemed to speak words. They observed also that this noise of the Indians went farther and farther off, so that they were satisfied the Indians fled away, except on one side, where they heard a doleful groaning and howling, and where it continued a good while, which they supposed was from some or other of them being wounded, and howling by reason of their wounds, or killed, and others howling over them. But our men had enough of making discoveries, so they did not trouble themselves to look farther, but resolved to take this opportunity to retreat. But the worst of their adventure was to come, for as they came back, they passed by a prodigious great trunk of an old tree. What tree it was, they said, they did not know, but it stood like an old decayed oak in a park, where the keepers in England take a stand, as they call it, to shoot a deer, and it stood just under the steep side of a great rock or hill, that our people could not see what was beyond it. As they came by this tree, they were of a sudden shot at from the top of the tree, with seven arrows and three lances, which, to our grief, killed two of our men, and wounded three more. This was the more surprising, because, being without any defence, and so near the trees, they expected more lances and arrows every moment, nor would flying do them any service, the Indians being, as appeared, very good marksmen. In this extremity they had happily this presence of mind, viz. to run close to the tree, and stand, as it were, under it, so that those above could not come at, or see them, to throw their lances at them. This succeeded, and gave them time to consider what to do. They knew their enemies and murderers were above, they heard them talk, and those above knew those were below. But they below were obliged to keep close, for fear of their lances from above. At length one of our men, looking a little more strictly than the rest, thought he saw the head of one of the Indians just over a dead limb of the tree, which, it seems, the creature sat upon. One man immediately fired, and leveled his piece so true that the shot went through the fellow's head, and down he fell out of the tree immediately, and came upon the ground with such force, with the height of his fall, that if he had not been killed with the shot, he would certainly have been killed with dashing his body against the ground. This so frightened them, that besides the howling noise they made in the tree, our men heard a strange clutter of them in the body of the tree, from whence, they concluded, they had made the tree hollow, and were got to hide themselves there. Now, had this been the case, they were secure enough from our men, for it was impossible any of our men could get up the tree on the outside, there being no branches to climb by, and to shoot at the tree, that they tried several times to no purpose, for the tree was so thick that no shot would enter it. They made no doubt, however, but that they had their enemies in a trap, and that a small siege would either bring them down, tree and all, or starve them out. 
so they resolved to keep their post and send to us for help. Accordingly, two of them came away to us for more hands, and particularly desired that some of our carpenters might come with tools to help cut down the tree, or at least to cut down other wood and set fire to it, and that, they concluded, would not fail to bring them out. Accordingly, our men went like a little army, and with mighty preparations for an enterprise, the like of which has scarce been ever heard, to form the siege of a great tree. However, when they came there, they found the task difficult enough, for the old trunk was indeed a very great one, and very tall, being at least two and twenty feet high, with seven old limbs standing out every way from the top, but decayed, and very few leaves, if any, left on it. William, the Quaker, whose curiosity led him to go among the rest, proposed that they should make a ladder and get upon the top, and then throw wildfire into the tree and smoke them out. Others proposed going back and getting a great gun out of the ship, which would split the tree in pieces with the iron bullets. Others that they should cut down a great deal of wood and pile it up round the tree and set it on fire and burn the tree and the Indians in it. These consultations took up our people no less than two or three days, in all which time they heard nothing of the supposed garrison within this wooden castle, nor any noise within. William's project was first gone about, and a large strong ladder was made to scale this wooden tower, and in two or three hours' time it would have been ready to mount, when, on a sudden, they heard the noise of the Indians in the body of the tree again, and, a little after, several of them appeared at the top of the tree, and threw some lances down at our men, one of which struck one of our seamen atop of the shoulder, and gave him such a desperate wound that the surgeons not only had a great deal of difficulty to cure him, but the poor man endured such horrible torture that we all said they had better have killed him outright. However, he was cured at last, though he never recovered the perfect use of his arm, the lance having cut some of the tendons on the top of the arm, near the shoulder, which, as I suppose, performed the office of motion to the limb before, so that the poor man was a cripple all the days of his life. But to return to the desperate rogues in the tree, our men shot at them, but did not find they had hit them, or any of them, but as soon as ever they shot at them, they could hear them huddle down into the trunk of the tree again, and there, to be sure, they were safe. Well, however, it was this which put by the project of William's ladder, for when it was done, who would venture up among such a troop of bold creatures as were there, and who, they supposed, were desperate by their circumstances? And as but one man at a time could go up, they began to think it would not do. And indeed, I was of the opinion, for about this time I was come to their assistance, that going up the ladder would not do, unless it was thus, that a man should, as it were, 
run just up to the top and throw some fireworks into the tree and come down again and this we did two or three times but found no effect of it at last one of our gunners made a stink pot as we called it being a composition which only smokes but does not flame or burn but withal the smoke of it is so thick and the smell of it so intolerably nauseous that it is not to be suffered this he threw into the tree himself and we waited for the effect of it but heard or saw nothing all that night or the next day so we concluded the men within were all smothered when on a sudden the next night we heard them upon the top of the tree again shouting and hallooing like madmen we concluded as anybody would that this was to call for help and we resolved to continue our siege for we were all enraged to see ourselves so balked by a few wild people whom we thought we had safe in our clutches and indeed never were there so many concurring circumstances to delude men in any case we had met with we resolved however to try another stink-pot the next night and our engineer and gunner had got it ready when hearing a noise of the enemy on the top of the tree and in the body of the tree i was not willing to let the gunner go up the ladder which i said would be but to be certain of being murdered however he found a medium for it and that was to go up a few steps and with a long pole in his hand to throw it in upon the top of the tree the latter being standing all this while against the top of the tree but when the gunner with his machine at the top of his pole came to the tree with three other men to help him behold the latter was gone end of section twenty two read by dennis sayers in modesto california for librivox